Welcome to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. I am your host, Steve Anderson, and we have a very exciting guest today. Mia Gonzalez-Dean has three decades of healthcare experience, starting her career as a physical therapist in the acute care, critical care, and adult neurologic rehabilitation. More recently, she founded her own healthcare consulting firm, specializing in interim and long-term healthcare leadership and management in the greater Philadelphia region. Prior to this, Mia served as the Assistant Executive Director and Contract Executive for Support Services at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, the flagship hospital of the Penn Medicine Health System. Early in her career at HUP, Mia held a leadership role in the Department of Occupational and Physical Therapy with a dual role in operational leadership, including continuous regulatory preparedness and quality improvement. Mia was recruited to join Sodexo Healthcare to bring the client perspective to innovative solution design, client relationship management, and communications for Sodexo's diverse programs of integrated facilities management and culinary services for healthcare organizations. Mia's experience working in large academic health systems positioned her well in her current role of supporting client relationship management and communications and project management for large healthcare openings and expansion, as well as ongoing leadership development and process improvement guidance to Sodexo's on-site leadership teams as part of Sodexo's framework of operational excellence. Mia has a Master's of Science in Physical Therapy from Long Island University. She also has an MBA from the Executive MBA Program at Temple University's Fox School of Business. Mia has been a fellow of the American College of Healthcare Executives since 2012. Mia is married to Dr. Gregory Dean, and she is also the proud mother of Naomi Dean. Mia and her family live in Philadelphia. Hi, Mia. Thanks for being on the program today. I really appreciate it. Great. It's my pleasure to be here with you. So uh, you started your career, uh, much like many of uh physical therapists like uh, myself, and you started uh, in patient care. So it was in the acute care area, I believe. So just tell us a little bit how, um, how you started your career as a physical therapist. Yeah, well, I uh, graduated from the University of Vermont School of Physical Therapy with a bachelor's degree. I had played volleyball all through high school and had decided with some friends to move out to San Diego so I could play volleyball after work every day and ended up working at uh, Sharp Rosemont Healthcare in acute care. Uh, had some great mentors there. And then, uh, I don't know, as many of us do, fell in love. And my husband was in a surgical residency program at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center and ended up moving from a community-based acute care hospital setting to an act large academic health system in uh, New York City. Um, so I was there for a while. And I think my journey was similar to that of a lot of physical therapists in that started to demonstrate some, you know, clinical acumen, some experience, responsibility, and you have a mentor within your department that says, you know, would you be interested in becoming a manager? <laughs> Which I thought was pretty funny because it really wasn't what I had embarked on uh, when I yeah. started my PT career. I mean, we're all very focused on being exceptional clinicians. So, you know, I was a little taken aback. I was flattered. And I said, yeah, I'd like to learn more. And, and one of my supervisors uh, in the Neurological Institute at Columbia was going on a honeymoon and ended up um, putting me in charge of the department. Uh, she was going on an extended honeymoon in the middle of a CARP survey. So <laughs> it's kind of like 
That wow, doesn't that's, under fire and I getting was going to say, that's in jumping in the frying pan, yeah, Correct. for sure. But, but it was a lot of, like, organic learning on the job of all the just vast regulatory requirements that we have to adhere to and really trying to figure out how to rally people who were essentially my peers at the time uh, into aligning with, you know, elegant system design and making sure that we were always prepared for any type of survey. Um, subsequently, my husband, Greg, uh, was selected for a pediatric urology fellowship at Children's Hospital Philadelphia. Um, and in the mid-90s, we ended up moving to Philadelphia, which has been our home ever since. Um, really loved the large academic health system model in terms of the patient acuity and complexity, the high velocity pace. So ended up uh, working as a senior clinician for the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, which is part of the Penn Medicine Health System in acute care again. Um, and then my boss at the time, uh, Lisa Dutterer, also a physical therapist, got pulled for what was in vogue at the time for a re-engineering project. So it would so happen that I was one of her most senior people, uh, again, responsible. She was teaching me a lot of the operational aspects of the department. And when she got pu pulled for a special project, she appointed me as a supervisor for the inpatient OT and PT department. And then when Lisa got another opportunity to become a healthcare executive um, at St. Luke's uh, Health System, she and uh, our department chair at the time for physiatry, Dr. Richard Salcido, they actually appointed me as an interim director. Um, so I was the interim director for the cross-continuum care of OT and PT, including ambulatory uh, in our rehab facilities, as well as acute care across two hospitals. Um, subsequently decided I wanted to go back to get my MBA um, and help recruit our director, that was full-time director, Bob Cullen, and I was uh, essentially his number two leader at the time. So it was just kind of this organic progression of clinical responsibility, um, getting ready for opportunities, learning on the job, and just, I guess, going for it and doing it and learning as I, I went along. Uh, subsequently, it was in a fellowship program at Penn, was selected by uh, someone who had been a mentor to me, uh, a healthcare executive, Gary Scheib, and was in a fellowship very briefly, which was supposed to be a two-year fellowship. And then he gave me the opportunity to lead uh, support services at the Hospital University of Pennsylvania, which was a radical departure from therapy department management. <laughs> but Gary had said to me, if I wanted to uh, really become a healthcare executive, it was really critically important to understand back of the house supply chain management, as well as support services, uh, which are really, you know, paramount to the smooth running of a large hospital. So that, that's kind of where I went with that journey. And now I'm working for Sodexo. <laughs> so it's amazing when you look at that support, support services division, um, reading your bio, I mean, you were in charge of a budget of $67 million. I mean, there's very few uh, business owners in our profession that, uh, that manage the, those kind of resources. 700-plus employees, seven departments. Uh, wow, I mean, you're running a huge organization there. Yeah, it was funny because Penn was so big and Huff was the flagship hospital. Uh, when I entered into it, obviously, I had a lot of guidance along the way. I reported to our chief operating officer, Al Black, who is just a, has such a long and storied career as a healthcare executive, also um, is an African-American healthcare executive and is a big advocate for in expanding out the diversity of the healthcare executive ranks. So I was actually born in the Philippines, although I was raised in uh, New England, in Massachusetts, in a suburb of Boston called Quincy. 
Um, but, you know, it, it was nice reporting to somebody, uh, executive of color, because we, we all have our different experiences, uh, but they helped us along the way in terms of uh, understanding, you know, obviously the, the budgeting, the financial op aspects of the operations, capital budget planning, and then the granular aspects of the day-to-day -day operations of very diverse service lines that were, again, just a radical departure from therapy and rehab. I had, I had to yeah. learn as I went along. Mm. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because uh, this is a show on leadership, and I think that uh, a couple things come to mind. First of all, when that first mentor asked you if you would be uh, interested in doing taking on a leadership role, what do you think that she saw in you? Uh, what what were the skills that were there, and and um, uh, why did she take a chance on you? I think I, I haven't talked to Lisa in some time, which is is pretty sad. I should be a better friend, actually, <laughs> but I, I know at the time. Um, I just always was a very intense scholar of anything I was doing at the moment. And again, because healthcare is such a highly regulated industry, I had really immersed myself in a lot of regulatory compliance, whether it was uh, joint commission regulations and standards. And, and, and for those of um, my counterparts that are familiar with these regs, you're talking about volumes and volumes of data to kind of interpret, but then also figure out how to um, bring in, uh, you know, really strong system design to make sure to set up your team for success and adhering to those throughout the year. So I think Lisa saw in me someone who was, as a kid, always really, I don't know, enamored with the rules. And my brothers always laughed at me. They're like, you're like a judge or you, you, you tell mom when we break the rules. But, you know, with healthcare, the rules are there for a specific reason to keep people safe. So I think Lisa saw in me a really good steward of the rules and keeping patients and our colleagues safe. Um, and also having the ability in terms of my ability to interact with people. Um, for those that know me, I'm a, a pretty smiley, positive person and friendly. And, and as a leader, I think being approachable was really critically important. Um, and especially, you know, in a, a safe or just culture, you want to have an environment where you're not fearful of telling someone, you know, I think I, think I messed up. And, and because I think I had those strong relationships with my colleagues, I think she felt confident in the people aspect of leadership that I could kind of straddle the fence and deal with, you know, operationalizing things and process improvement, but also on the people side, really encouraging um, su and supporting people to success. Yeah, well, I think that's a, that's a great uh, an ability to see that because I think as you started out explaining that, that was much more on the analytical kind of data operational side of things. But then to run an organization as big as you were running, I mean, you have to have the relationship building, people skills as well. And uh, not every leader has both of those um, skills because they are very, very different. So it sounds to me uh, like you have that unique ability to do both uh, when needed. Yeah, and I think the people part, it cannot be overemphasized as being so important. I know that, I've, you know, I've had a long career in healthcare and have seen um, folks and or, and or have heard of folks that have totally derailed their careers, not because of a lack of business acumen, but really in terms of really lacking uh, that emotional intelligence and, and also just honestly forgetting about the humanity. Like, this is a people-centered business of healthcare, whether it's patients or families. And I, I always, always remember my colleagues and, and really enhancing my colleagues' quality of work life is vitally important um, and is, you know, in a sense, my North Star in a lot of things that I do. And, and with leaders, 
forgetting the humanity or the people aspect of what you're doing, it, it, it honestly misses the point. Yeah, it absolutely does. And I couldn't agree with you more. I, I've always uh, gone with my theory of uh, put people first. And, uh, you know, by doing that, it's just uh, you, you build the relationships and then it, it enables you to do more of the analytical, efficient type of um uh, considerations that you obviously need. Now, one thing too that I noticed too in doing a little research for this interview today is that uh, uh, you're one who, uh, during your leadership, uh, wrote many handwritten um, notes to to employees, um, and uh, that's not done very much anymore. So, uh, tell me about that and 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 why you do that and and why you think it's effective. Yeah, very uh, specific recognition was always very meaningful to me. And I, I can't remember, I, I read a lot of different business and leadership books. So I don't remember exactly where I saw this book and who the author was, but they had written, you know, you never get sick of someone thanking you. You know, if someone's thanking you a hundred times over, it still, you know, potentially can make your heart sing the hundred and first time. And that's okay. And I knew that for myself that didn't really expect it or want recognition for people. But when people gave it to you, and it was very uh, specific and personal, it was incredibly meaningful. And a lot of times with recognition and inspiring and motivating people, a lot of folks think, you know, their visceral reaction to thinking about recognition and reward is to say there's a monetary price tag to that. And when you're trying to fill somebody's emotional bucket and, and, you know, making sure that they are fully, you know, satisfied or happy with a, a role, Part of it's really just saying thank you. And, and to take that further, the, the other part about the specificity and the personalization, which is really important, I really worked hard to get to know my teams as best as possible. When I was in support services at HUP, that was challenging because there were about 700 uh, frontline team members that were part of my portfolio. Um, but, but it's funny, when you walk in the hallway in the hospital or around campus, they would they would quiz me and they would say, who am I? What do I do? What's special about me? And, and over time, I was in that role for about nine years. I did, I, I think something I'm real proud of, I, I did get to know them. But the piece about customization and personalization, it's something I actually picked up from my mother. Because when we were children, we would often have relatives that kind of lived in far-flung areas like the Philippines or across the country. Um, in the United States, and they would send us gifts for money or whatever. So I think at a very young age, my my mother, Hilda, who happened to be a medical social worker, you know, at the time it was really difficult, but she made us do thank you cards. <laughs> so we would have to write a thank you card immediately upon opening whatever, the gift of money or a check or something else. And I just have had a lot of practice since I was a little kid about writing those letters. And, and the letters for the staff, um, I did a program in support services called Walk in My Shoes, and it was actually something that my mentor, Gary Scheib, had encouraged us all to do. And I would rotate donning the uniform of the team member that I was shadowing. My team would actually identify high-performing team members for me to spend half a day with, and I would be their helper for the day. So I might be doing landscaping one day. I might actually be cleaning patient rooms in the hospital another day. I might be um, helping with uh, tray line and food production or helping out with uh, laundry and linen or whatever. But after I finished those meetings, uh, you know, I would often have a meal with that team member. And then when I finished that meeting, I would write them a very specific thank you note. And, and actually, um, 
my notes were pretty long, so I'm faster at typing. So they, they were not always <laughs> handwritten, but I would type them out on a computer on my letterhead and I would mail the letter uh, to the team member's home. And, and a lot of them said, you know, my, my wife framed that. And that's the first time any uh, executive ever thanked me for anything or spent time with me. So that's type of stuff to me is um, it, it's kind of why I'm there as a leader to support the team, make them feel valued and not invisible and take an effort to write a, a, a note of thanks to them. It's such a great lesson, and I, I do believe uh, I, I did the same thing in my leadership roles of writing a lot of thank you notes and a lot of congratulatory notes. And people do. They, they put them on their bulletin boards. They, they put them in the drawer and bring them out every once in a while to see them again, and, and, and it means a lot because I think when it gets right down to it, people do want to uh, be appreciated and be acknowledged for what they do and just be, uh, be seen, so to speak. And, and the other thing that you told in that story that I thought was just really amazing is in a lot of leadership classes that I've taught, you ask people, what kind of a leader do you want to follow? And, um, and most of them will tell you is a leader that's willing to roll up their sleeves and, and do what I do. And so you definitely modeled that, and I can see how effective that would be. Yeah, and that's definitely, even in my therapy days, that was always very true. And, and again, in this era of physical therapy, um, and at Penn, we had so many different subspecialties, certification, internships, residencies, fellowships, that kind of thing. Um, you subspecialized, but when you could pitch in to provide patient care at the time as a clinical manager with a partial caseload, for those supervisors that did not pitch in when uh, the, the patient volume was heavy, um, they didn't have any street credibility with the team, and, and that was very problematic. So, so the other unique thing about therapy leadership is really, um, I think there's an assumed uh, clinical level of expertise. So if, if you don't have it um, you know, in that type of professional field, it, it's pretty challenging, although not impossible, to uh, be construed as a respected leader. So I was, uh, you know, very proud of that within my realm of, you know, acute care and uh, critical care ICU physical therapy. And that was where my expertise was. So do you feel that you had tougher challenges as a minority in leadership in large organizations like you've worked in? Well, that, that's a great question. And I had mentioned Al Black, and he, he was actually a founding member and the first president for the National Association of Health Services Executives, which really focused on a professional organization that focused on really expanding out the diverse, the diversity of healthcare executives. So Al, Al is a great mentor, an African-American healthcare executive. And, and one of the things he had said to me during uh, our very many meetings that we had together, uh, he was my COO at Hub that I reported to, was, you know, we're people of color. That's a fact one. And fact two, and my father had always said this to me, and I'm going to say it to you, you're going to have to work 10 times as hard as everyone else, and you're going to have to have superior outcomes. And again, as I'm saying this, people listening may agree or disagree with that sentiment, but I kind of felt that way as well. And and even within our own team at the time, although I, I, I haven't been in touch recently, it might look a little bit different. You know, I think on, on our senior executive team, there was Al, myself, and uh, one of my, my other colleagues, who was also an African-American uh, gentleman that was on our team. And other than that, everyone else was Caucasian. Um, so there wasn't a ton of diversity, I think. And certainly our senior healthcare executive ranks at the time didn't reflect that. 
and part of the other issue, I guess, in my my role and 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 having mentors that are going to be incredibly truthful and candid with you is incredibly helpful. Because one of my mentors, who happened not to be an executive of color, had confided in me that some people were surprised that I came out of physical therapy, somewhat out of left field, and was in kind of this uh, senior level position. And I was I appreciated her candor. And she said, you know, people are questioning, you haven't climbed all the rungs of a ladder, meaning she, I think people felt that I bypassed a couple rungs and went to a higher level position without quote unquote paying my dues. So that feedback was really helpful, whether or not it was associated with my being a woman, whether or not it was associated with the fact that I was Filipino American, or that I was coming out of rehab as a clinician, I'm not sure. Um, but that feedback fueled me, and Al's words fueled me. So it, it's kind of similar to the student, perhaps, of color of a different or of a different background, where they are going to work ten times as hard as the next person. And we, you kind of walk into it with this broad expectation that your outcomes have to be exceptional and superior. And and I'm okay with that. I, I, I guess that's just that's just the landscape I was playing in and, and I, I dealt with it and I didn't have any regrets about how I approached it. And in fact, I think it actually made me a better leader, Wh whether that's fair or equitable today, I would say no, but yes. I, you know, I don't know that we're going to change that. And, and, and you can only control what you can control, which is your outcome. Well, and someone like you has had a lot of experience in these larger organizations. It just appears kind of from observation that in healthcare, we do have a pretty diverse mix of providers in those large systems. But what about at the upper levels of the executive level? Is it still pretty much a, a white Caucasian world, or is um, are, are our minority uh, positions, our minority uh, leaders uh, able to get some of those um, higher-level positions as well? Yeah, I don't know any data related to the question, but I would say just anecdotally, definitely seeing more people of diverse backgrounds and senior roles. So I think that's nice. And certainly I, I work for a company called Sodexo right now. So I know that uh, diversity, inclusion, and gender balance leadership teams is a huge uh, priority focus and strategic imperative for our company. And within our, uh, our board, our executive board, I think... Uh, it might be close to half or half are women, which is unusual for a Fortune 500 company. So I definitely see and hear more about organizations being much more strategic, thoughtful, and intentional about expanding out a candidate slate for any type of position, whether board or senior executive role. And again, to your point about the community and patient served, that is so vitally important. And, and, and actually, as you know, our senior executives are aging. When you're thinking succession planning, that's the opportunity then to really expand out, cast that net a lot wider, and provide a very diverse candidate slate. So you are going to get truly exceptional people of different backgrounds. So whether or not, you know, healthcare has been successful at that, I can't speak to that because I'm not knowledgeable, but certainly anecdotally, I'm getting that sense that that's the, that's the quest that everyone's on. And I would I would step out and say that uh, some of our ground session discussions and so on that we've had is is to be frank, uh, physical therapy is horrible with our diversity right now uh, as providers. 
we are very, very uh, poor in diversity, and there's a you know there's a lot of discussion as to why that is, uh, but it's it's an area that that I just feel strongly that I think we as a profession really need to uh, take head on and find ways to uh, make it more attainable for. Uh, minority uh, uh, students that are looking to get into physical therapy and, and just improve that part of our profession. Now, that's a that's a great point. And, and I had mentioned I grew up in New England in uh, Quincy, Massachusetts, which is about 10 minutes south of Boston, ended up um, getting accepted to the University of Vermont's physical therapy program in Burlington, Vermont. And at the time I went in like the mid 80s, it was a you know, very white state. And, and in, within my PT class, there was myself, uh, my classmate, Po, uh, who was uh, of Korean background. And then we had another student, uh, Carolyn, who had come from a program in Chicago. She was an African-American woman. And her program had closed, and UVM had extended out an arm because our dean actually was African-American, uh, Dean Lawrence McCrory at the time, which was unusual. But he had created, a, uh, I guess, a, a partnership with the school to say, we will accept your students into our program since your program is shutting down. Uh, but, the, but the funny thing about being one of few minority students if any one of us missed, you know, physical therapy classes back in the day, you're in, in class or lab from 8 a.m. to 5. If Poe, Carolyn, or I were missing, it was glaringly obvious. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the kind of the yeah. foible of being, you know, a minority and, uh, you know, classmates of other, you know, Caucasian students. Um, and again, I don't know that that has shifted, if the state of Vermont demographic has shifted, but but a lot of it is really a lot of outreach that people do, you know, in a grassroots and elementary school, starting really, really young, because uh, a lot of them don't know about physical therapy as a profession. And I would extend that out to um, my current field of uh, support services operations, where a lot of people don't know about, you know, being in any of these kind of roles, like, oh, I could be a chef, or I could be a supply chain professional. People don't know what that is. When when people look at hospital housekeeping, they look at it as, oh, you're a cleaner. And it's like, well, really, no, they're, they're part of this whole arsenal and um, uh, human resource and experts around infection prevention. And so a lot of kids just don't know about physical therapy or any other profession. And, and, and we as adults have to introduce them to that and show them that there is a diverse palette of people that can fill those shoes and, and, and you know, play effectively in those roles. Yeah, absolutely. Well put. Can you share with us a little bit about what your leadership role is now with the Sodexo and what actually do you do as a healthcare executive in that organization? Yeah, so I, I was brought in, and actually, it's funny, when you talk about leadership, they always talk about it's all about your network of people that you know. And I had actually wanted to go back to get my uh, MBA after having been taught um, by mentors within hospital-based operations and the PT program. You know, and people teach you basic scheduling, basic budgeting things, et cetera, basic human resource management. But, but being, I, I don't know, this kind of perpetual scholar I said, I really want to go back and immerse myself in this, and I want to go back to business school. So I decided upon um, looking at executive programs because it had, in Temple University here in Philly, I, picked, I ended up picking their program. It was a cohort group, so you'd be with your classmates. I'm a very kind of social people person, so I like being in the classroom versus an online course of study. And one of my classmates from the EMBA program actually called me on the phone and said, you know, I've been in touch with you through the years because you've been in support services, but I'd, I'd like you to join 
our sales team, which I kind of laughed about because I had never worked in any kind of sales. And I had said to my friend, I go, that's very funny because I'm, I feel like I'm a, a purveyor of ideas, concept, selling vision, articulating vision, helping my team kind of follow a path to a desired and ideal end outcome, but I don't know about healthcare sales. And, and her premise about asking me about it was that she felt like with uh, healthcare sales for Sodexo in support services, so that would be culinary or integrated facilities management services for our company uh, in the northeastern part of the United States, was simply that because you're an educator, we have physical therapists all are educators and teachers, a lot of it pivots around consultative selling and simply kind of identifying through the network ways and opportunities to promote and educate people about service lines that they could benefit from. So it was great. And she like reassured me, we're going to teach you on the job. So I was in that role for about a year and, and worked primarily because I was new in client retention accounts. So uh, these service contracts that have a specific term of agreement as we were getting to renegotiate um, contract extension, that's where I would get involved for the most part. Um, but then as I started collaborating with the operators, our colleagues at Sodexo that actually do the operations, got pulled in by another friend within the company to say, hey, I've got this different opportunity. Would you be interested, because you do have large academic health system experience, with being a client relations um, and communications experts for some of our large health system openings? Um, so I ended up doing and switching over to her team and doing that for now for the past couple months. And it's been great because I, I think, honestly, everyone has uh, different passions. And I think part of my passion is I feel like if you have precise and exceptional operations, additional business and sales will ultimately follow. So I felt like I could be much more impactful on her team in that role. And it's been fun because I continue to be able to work with very large health systems um, across different parts of the U.S. and also work with colleagues remotely um, because I actually have a 12-year-old daughter who is an incredibly serious ballerina, and so she's got a lot of rehearsal commitments. And as a working mom, I'm able to kind of bring her back and forth and support Sodexo um, and my team remotely with sporadic travel for uh, you know face-to-face -face client visits. So that, that's what I'm doing right now. And in terms of work-life integration, uh, Sodexa was one of the leaders in remote positions for all different levels of our organization. And I'm actually party to that and able to benefit. And spending this time with uh, my daughter, Naomi, has been absolutely in, invaluable. Yeah, that's great. I, I personally think that more PTs need to be in healthcare leadership roles than, than they actually are. And, and, and with that um, bias, I guess, uh, you know, I'm interested, did you feel uh, judged or uh, questioned by your PT peers for going into that area <laughs> of leadership as opposed to treating patients? That's so funny you say <laughs> That's funny you say that. I actually was an adjunct professor in uh, some uh, leadership and business topics at Arcadia University. Uh, one of my, my friends, uh, Rose Lapopolo, had taken uh, some time off, uh, and, and she said, you know, would you be willing to teach my classes for me for a while. I think I did it for about a year and a half or two years. So I was working with uh, DPT students at Arcadia. And, and that was, it was funny when I, after I introduced myself and kind of my career path, they would all, you know, all the students were so friendly and interesting and engaged, but they would say, Mia, you know, I, we feel bad for you. Don't you miss patient care? <laughs> and they were very, they felt very sad for me that I was 
kind of in the business side. And I, I said to them, you know, that's funny you say that, but you guys forget, you know, I'm, I'm very vertically challenged or short, whatever you want to say. So I guess maybe <laughs> I look young. Some, you know, some people say, no, it's that Filipino skin. You look a lot younger than, than you actually are. <laughs> but um, I said, you guys forget I was, I had my career for a long time. So I've had multiple years in clinical practice and in different service lines and learning different things clinically. Um, and this is just like a whole new chapter for me, like going to the business side. And then the other thing where I tried to set the contextual frame for them was saying, as physical therapists, we do incredibly um, mission-driven uh, work, uh, patient to patient and with our family members, enhancing their quality of life and their independence. And, and that is incredibly gratifying. And I said, it's interesting because when you shift to what I was doing at the time, hospital-based operations, you now, in effect, you have the ability to impact so many more people leading from a higher level. Um, and in particular with support services, the things that often are those intangible things like an exquisitely prepared meal that is not only uh, delicious, but therapeutic and, and, and actually going to serve as food as medicine to get you better faster. And not just the actual chefs that cook it, but also people that are the host hostesses and being part of that group that helps build up their skill set on bringing humanity um, and hospitality back into hospital-based services. And, and from whatever framework structurally and strategically that I'm setting up as an executive of that workforce, we now are impacting all those thousands of people that are admitted through our hospital doors. And isn't that kind of cool and gratifying? And, and my students would look at me and they're like, yeah, that's kind of interesting. And the funny thing is when you've been in the, the you know, profession for a long time, those grad students that I had are now colleagues of mine within, you know, I'm a member of the American College of Healthcare Executives and also a fellow of the organization. I'll bump into those former students of mine at these meetings and I laugh and I said, you were in my classroom telling me that you would never go to the quote unquote dark side of business of healthcare. And there you are. <laughs> and they're, they're leaders in all different realms. So you don't, you don't pick that path because you want to be a clinician. But it's a it's a really cool and interesting part of your journey um, if you go for the you know go along for the ride and embrace it. Well, you make such a great point. I think that you know one on one experience with a with a patient as a physical therapist is very powerful and 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 very rewarding. Yet, if you can take your skills and what you know and your experiences and affect many more people in a more broader role. Uh, wow, I mean that's that that's powerful as well. So it's it's just a very interesting uh, way to look at it. Uh, along those lines, what advice can you give young professionals who are interested in in uh, pursuing leadership roles that are outside that traditional patient care realm? Uh, what, what advice, since you've lived it, would you give that young professional who wants to go on that path? That's a great question. Uh, you know, it's interesting in this day and age, and I'm laughing because my 12-year-old my daughter thinks it's hilarious that I, I grew up in an era where, you know, God, God forbid, there was no internet. There were no smartphones. There were no, you know, a lot of this technology didn't exist. And then now here we are in 2019. There are so many different social media platforms. And I think that the, the ability to learn more about career path possibilities is really infinite nowadays. You obviously have to be careful, but, um, you know, with LinkedIn or, you know, Twitter, whatnot. But, but I've had a lot of people just reach out to me on LinkedIn and say, 
you know, it's really interesting. I was like kind of reading your, you know, public profile on LinkedIn and I'm a PT too, or I'm interested in PT and people just start asking questions. So my advice to anyone is to say that, you know, reach out to people that you think you might be interested just in talking to and think about, you know, some pointed questions you might want to ask them and find out if they talk to you briefly, you know, have an agenda, have a circumscribed time frame that you want to speak to them. And, and honestly, this has been true throughout my career. Um, people are so generous with sharing their knowledge and their time. I, I remember when I was looking and exploring potential MBA programs um, at the executive level uh, here in Philadelphia, uh, help one of the, the chief marketing officer, Leslie Davis at the time, I, I called her and I said, you know, I really admire you as a leader and I wanted to ask you a couple questions because I'm trying to consider different schools in the area. Would you be willing to meet with me for about 20 minutes just so I could run some thoughts by you? And, you know, people are so generous. She, she, she called me back and she said, 20 minutes. She's like, that's not long enough. Let's go out to lunch. I'm taking you out to lunch. <laughs> so yeah. I, I think folks, when I think people are very generous with their time. And I, if I've learned anything in my career, it's definitely don't be afraid to ask the question. And uh, very rarely would you ask anybody to be a mentor or to give you assistance or whatever and that person to say no. So you just have yeah. to have to be bold enough and brave enough and and to, to you know, to ask the question and then uh, be present uh, to hear the to hear the information. Yeah. And they should as as in as much as physical therapy students or others are uh, involved, hopefully with the American Physical Therapy Association, as well as regional chapters. They could look into other organizations uh, in the field that they're interested in. So I mentioned American College of Healthcare Executives. Um, there's other uh, financially focused organizations. There's physician practice management organizations. There's so many different types of organizations under the planet. And part of it is just go to some of these educational events, um, you know, for topics that pique their interest and just talk to some people make the effort to just go to the reception. And oftentimes you meet people that just give you helpful knowledge, you learn things. And sometimes quite frankly, what we did in the fellowship at Penn Medicine, and it was, we had really great access to the entire C-suite because it was an educational uh, program. We actually rotated and spent a day with each of the C-suite executives. And it was incredibly elucidating in the sense that when you were with one of the executives, there were certain aspects of things that they were tasked to do with their role that you thought were the coolest things and wonderful. And I would love to do that, but perhaps a more valuable lesson were all those things that you said, I cannot imagine a wanting to do it or be doing it for the rest of my career. So you could kind of by deduction say, I don't want to be X, Y, or Z, but I think I would be really interested in A, B, or C. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Share with us, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here. So share with us a moment in your career when you realized uh, that you were a big deal. You, you had achieved something that you never thought possible. When did that hit you and when did you notice that? Wow. I, I mean, honestly, I, I, I was so uh, flattered and honored that you even considered me for this series. I, I, you know, some of the folks that you've interviewed in the past, I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm really not that caliber of leader. I think I've always um, set out in my career, especially uh, in that, that support services leadership role at Penn, where I, I did have a lot of department directors and indirectly some assistant directors and operational managers reporting to me. 
um, in that group. And, and part of my quest for them was not just operational excellence amongst the team, but really looking at each one of them as leaders and, and really trying to help support them to become the best leaders they, they could possibly be. And I, I, again, I don't think that was a big deal, but in terms of uh, support service and some, some of the things that I did where when I actually was uh, leaving uh, to start my own um, LLC, healthcare consulting, which I did very briefly, um, you know, when I was leaving, just a lot of them had asked to meet with me and just share with me how I'd been impactful to their lives. And, and some of them had pursued higher degrees. Some of them had pursued um, certification as supply chain managers. And a lot of it, they said, was through my example of lifelong learning. And many of them, some of them had left and taken, you know, more senior positions within uh, their companies. We had a couple of outsourced firms that we collaborated with. Um, so I was very proud of that. So. So the big deal part for me is, you know, I'm a big uh, Tom Peters fans. I, I read a lot of Tom Peters leadership books and business books. Um, and, and one of the things, and I'll, I'll just paraphrase because I don't remember exactly what he said, but really the role of a leader is to create more leaders. And I feel like that's really at Penn in, in particular with the support services team, which is an amazing, amazingly talented team of people. A lot of them either have had gone on to take more senior executive roles, which I'm incredibly proud of, because I, I know in part I influenced that. Um, and then some of them just continue to be really exceptional and, and proud and, and tell them, um, you know, what an impact I had on them, but not only them, uh, but their frontline team members. And people said that, you know, you really made us feel special. Um, you really made us uh, visible within the hospital in, in an academic setting. The rock stars of an academic setting often are the, the surgeons, the, the medical physicians and uh, advanced practice providers, nursing therapists that provide direct patient care. And so for the, that, those team members would tell me that they felt special and valued and that they felt they understood how they contributed. I feel like that's my legacy. And at that point, if, if that's being a big deal, then it would be that moment. Well, you're exhibiting a true leader in humility. Uh, so that is a skill that I think a lot of le good leaders have, and you've just showed that. And and I can just tell you from my experience of people that I know who know you and have been around you as they just go on and on about the exceptional leader that you are. And so you're a total natural for this program and someone I couldn't wait to talk to because that's that's what it's about. It's that I think you hit it right on. It's that uh, learning all the time. You know, people ask me, why do I do these interviews? And basically, because every time I do one, I learn something new and I learn something exciting so that um, you know, uh, lifelong learner type of uh, approach or, or attitude, I think, does well for leaders, and, and you exhibit that. Uh, it's just awesome. So. Thank you. So uh, what's, uh, what's, what's in the future for Mia? Where, where are you going from here? Um, what, uh, are, are you, are you, what's the next big uh, mountain you're going to climb? Right. It's so funny that you say that. I, I had uh, lunch with uh, my mentor, Gary Shive, last week, and I, I was telling him there's so many pearls of wisdom that uh, my different mentors and or friends have shared with me throughout the years. And one of the things that was funny with Gary, because he, you know, I said to him, Gary, you've held all these different senior level positions. You came in to Penn Medicine and Hospital University of Pennsylvania was uh, really struggling financially, and you were 
you're part of spearheading a, a massive financial turnaround for for Hop, and it, it's really thriving today. Um, and in large part, I you know I'd say you know we owe a debt of gratitude to Gary for doing that back when he came in. And I said, what what was your path like? How how did you get to where you're going? And and, and a lot of what he said to me was, you know, it's funny because he he is uh, part of the head of the fellowship program. And he said part of the challenge with some of the leaders that he's mentoring, they're so focused on what's my next move? What's my next move? And then what ends up happening is the, the role that they're currently playing, they end up dropping the ball on it. And at that point, you don't get any additional opportunities when you can't even exceed or be exceptional in what you're doing today. So I honestly don't know the answer to that, except that in terms of where I'm going next, but that right now and what I'm doing, I, I take a lot of joy out of it. I take a lot of pride in how we're contributing um, to healthcare across the United States and, and the ways I'm supporting my Sodexo colleagues has been really, really gratifying and fun. So I take Gary's advice to heart, which is I want to be superior in everything I'm doing today and other stuff follows. And it's really funny because when I talk to my grad students, they wanted to understand career path. Like, how do you map it out? And, and I think you know, for, for detail-oriented people, they, they want to know precisely what's step A, what's step B, and what's step C, and they want to understand the milestones and the timeline, um, really from a project management perspective, where am I going to be? And, and sometimes, I, I'm not a great example of being real thoughtful and strategic, but I really just followed Gary's advice, and if I'm exceptional at what I'm doing, ultimately, other people are going to notice, and when there's an opportunity that might be a stretch goal for me, and I don't know how to do it, I'm always inclined to say I'm, I'm reasonably prepared to quickly, you know, learn and excel in that role as well. So I, I think other opportunities will follow, but 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 I'm maybe a bad example because I'm not actually actively looking for well, those. Well, I think you, you said it perfectly in the sense that you, in a sense, have to trust the process and you just evolve. Uh, you know, I can tell you that people ask me, well, how did you get to, you know, be the CEO of this large company? And I said, it was never on my radar. It was never something right. that I said, oh, this is what I want to do and want to be. And I do think that some uh, newer professionals that are struggling to find, you know, their their place in, 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 the, in their career path, uh, I think about it a little too much in the sense of trying to to pick out that perfect position that's going to serve all their needs and and all their their wants and and I think uh, you know an earlier interview with Daniel Pink said that you just have to find what what you have passion for and then go and just start moving and then during that process is when opportunities arise and then you have to be aware to um, um, be, see them and then take advantage of them when you see them but you can't map it out from a to b from a you know and just say this is how it's going to be because you have to just start moving sometimes Absolutely. Yeah. So at this point in the program, usually, Mia, I, you, you said the uh, pearls of wisdom, which has always been our uh, uh, kind of the way we end these, uh, these uh, interviews. So uh, for those listeners today, uh, give us a, a pearl of wisdom that we can uh, take uh, relating to leadership. Well, I think um, the, the one thing that's been very relevant to me recently, and I mentioned I, I have a, a only child, Naomi, who's now 12. And one of the tragedies, I guess, of being in hospital-based operations is that you re we really were very much married to the facility. You know, it's a 24-7 operations. 
Um, there may be inclement weather emergencies, utility emergencies. Um, we were all kind of locked down on campus when the Pope visited because the, the city was kind of shut down and um, routes of traffic were blocked off. So I, I was there a lot as a mom. And so Naomi, uh, we had uh, babysitters that helped out, et cetera. So I guess my pearl of wisdom to people and, and, and a lot of times uh, both mothers and fathers, uh, grandparents, whoever, a lot of leaders talk about work-life integration and, and how do you do it. So, so one of my pearls is that obviously we get a lot of gratification and passion from our, my work, our work, and I, I don't regret what I did at all. But I, I think one of the things that killed me when I, I went and um, started doing consulting with, where I had more uh, latitude and flexibility in my schedule and being able to work remotely and spend more time with her, she said, Mom, this is great. We're having dinner together. Remember when you used to come home from the hospital at like midnight? <laughs> and I'm like, oh. And I, just, you know, it really crushed my soul when she said that. And and I obviously wasn't doing it anymore. But doing kind of like her early years, it was very difficult. So my pearl of wisdom would be to people in life. Um, and and I'm proud to work for Sodexo, and I have three different leaders who happen to be women that I collaborate with very intimately, and all you know, very much respect the fact that I have you know, my husband, Greg, my daughter, Naomi, and that we have a life outside of Sodexo. And I would really encourage people to think about um, joining an organization or hanging your own shingle and, and really trying to figure out how to thread in work-life integration with what you're doing. Um, it, you know, in kind of game theory, it's not a zero-sum game. It, you know, you, you don't have to be this exceptional leader and then now sacrifice having, um, you know, a gratifying family life. Um, so I would just encourage people to think about that. And especially with knowledge work and remote work and different possibilities for people to engage, um, you know, remotely with all this technology, that if that's something that can be an option at certain points in your lives when your children need you the most, uh, to really strongly consider it. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I think that when we look at those life balance things, you know, they, they kind of go in cycles. There are times when you are out of balance and there's other times when you can you can uh, uh, shift it to to the, the positive side, and, and as you've uh, mentioned, with being able to work from home and, and and having more flexibility when you have your consulting firm. So I think it's just a really interesting dilemma that if you strive for perfection in that, it's probably not possible. But if you can just realize that you do things for a reason, and sometimes you're out of balance, and sometimes you get back in balance, uh, you know, hopefully you go forward and and you don't have any regrets at the end of the day. Yeah, and I, I don't remember who said it, but, um, you know, when you're on your deathbed and you're like not, hopefully 90 years old or 100 years old, you're never going to look back at your life and say, you know, dear Lord, I, I wish I worked more. And, and so I think that would be my lesson to if I was speaking to any of my students or any kind of early or mid-careerists that are like looking at life. Um, it's not zero sum and, and you can have both, but you have to you have to figure out how to integrate both in a way that's going to, you know, allow you to thrive uh, as best as possible in, in both situations. And kind of along those lines to end it up here, if, if uh, the experienced uh, 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 Mia of today could uh, look back and, and talk to the Mia uh, as two or three years out of uh, school, uh, what advice would you give that younger Mia? Wow. You know, I, I'm I'm a pretty I was always a pretty serious student, and what I would say to the younger person of today is like, 
I don't know, get out of the, get out of the medical library and like go out with your friends a little bit more. I just remember always being in that library because physical therapy, I took very seriously and our course of study was so hard. And I just admired some of my classmates that were so good about uh, integrating, you know, reading for pleasure. And I said, well, you're reading for pleasure. What about we have a neurophysiology quiz, like a neuroanatomy and physiology uh, exam next week. Why are you not studying that? And I just, you know, my my uptight kind of scholarly self, I would say, loosen up a bit and enjoy life. It's going to pass you by. So that would be my advice to the younger me. Oh, that's that's that is great advice. Well, Mia, this has been a real pr- pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking with you. I've learned a lot. I think you're uh, you're just such a great role model for a lot of people that are looking for. Uh, maybe a more non-traditional path in physical therapy. And, and and to me, as I said earlier in the program, if we can have more people of your um, of, of, of your ability to, to lead and, and the dynamic self that you are as a PT in these leadership roles, I just think we would uh, we would have better systems, uh, better health care systems. So I commend you for uh, uh, leading the path and getting out there and doing some amazing things. And I just really enjoyed talking to you. And um, thanks for being on the program today. Thank you, Steve. And I really am an admirer of the whole series. Um, you bring out the, the best in people in terms of very interesting questions to consider and thoughtfulness. So I, I would encourage everyone to listen to all of your different interviews. They, they Each one of them you learn something from. So thank you for that contribution that you bring. And appreciate you asking me to join you on this call. Oh, thanks for the plug, Mia. I appreciate it very much. And uh, nice talking to you and have a great rest of your day. You too. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. To hear our entire series of interviews, search iTunes Podcasts for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. To view videos of many of my interviews, search YouTube for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. You can also visit my website, orange.coaching.com, and go to the Media Center, where all episodes of video and podcast episodes are available. 